Welcome to Socialist Revolution Podcast. In this episode, we analyze the reawakening of the labor movement in the U.S. America will never be a socialist country. Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. Today, we are borrowing from the International Marxist Radio podcast. Our comrade Tom Troutier was interviewed by Joe Attard from our international headquarters in London. You can check out all the other episodes from this weekly podcast by visiting podcast.marxist.com. Hope you enjoy! If you've been following the world news, you'll know that the sleeping giants of the American labor movement, after a long period of relative dormancy, is beginning to rouse itself. There's been a wave of strikes, thousands of new workers and young people joining the ranks of the American trade unions. As we've seen in a number of different advanced capitalist countries, the pressure of the crisis is forcing American workers to enter the mass organizations and enter the field of industrial struggle just to defend their existing living conditions, wages, um, and living standards. America, as the foremost capitalist world power, has an outsized importance in terms of the global class struggle. And really, the American working class, for that reason, is the most important factor in the World Socialist Revolution. So it's very exciting to have with us Tom Trottier, who is a leading member of Socialist Revolution, which is the US section of the international Marxist tendency, to talk to us about this revival on the American labor front. Tom, how are you doing? Very good. Thanks for inviting me. Well, very excited to have another international guest on the show. So I think I'll hop straight in and just to bring our listeners up to speed, I think that probably the first indication to most international observers that something was stirring in the American trade unions was Striketober, big wave of class struggle involving, I believe, about 100,000 workers in various sectors from construction to mining. There was talk of um, a strike in the media sector as well. Um, in, in, in retail too, and a number of new unions have sprung up and layers of the working class that weren't previously involved in the trade union movement have become organized and are starting to fight back. Um, there's a history to Striketober. It didn't come out of nowhere. And I wonder if you could perhaps give a little bit of historical background on how we got to this point where the American workers are starting to flex their muscles once again. Sure. Well, first of all, Joe, as you pointed out, the U.S. working class is a giant. Business owners and the petty bourgeois, they monopolize the media in the United States. If you watch movies, you watch television, all the characters are always business people or you know uh, various uh, petty bourgeois types. But the overwhelming part of the U.S. population is working class. You have about 158 million people employed in the United States, and 90% of them are wage and salary workers. You know, the, the, the self-employed, the petty bourgeois is 10% at most. 
Um, and some of the wage and salary workers might be professionals and managers, but even many of these people are treated like workers. For example, you have among professionals, you have a proletarianization process going on. Even some doctors and even some lawyers are now organizing uh, into unions. And as a result of that, you see strikes definitely on the rise. Major strikes grew 50% last year in 2022. And if you look at like the four major strikes in the last four years from like 2018 to 2022, contrast that to the 15-year period before from 2002 to 2017, and you see a, a significant growth in the number of major strikes. Now, this, this does pose this question, why is this happening? Why, why is this occurring right now in the United States? This beginning of, of a fight back by sec- a section of the working class. Well, for 50 years, the labor movement in the United States has been on the defensive. Um, if you look back at 1970, a quarter of the labor force was unionized. Then if you look at 1980, it was down to a fifth of the labor uh, force was unionized. Now it's down to 10.1%. And if you look at that 10, if you break it down, it's about a third of the public sector workers are in unions, but only 6% of the private sector are in unions. So what we saw was with that major world slump in the middle 1970s, which marked the end of the post-war boom. From that time on, the bosses in the United States went on the attack against the working class. Real wages and benefits were driven down, especially like retirement benefits, healthcare, working conditions got worse. And the trade union leaders have not put forward any policies that can turn this around. Just to pause and, you for a second. Yeah, sure. Um, my understanding is that a major turning point in the... Um, the struggle between the bosses and the unions was the defeat of the Patco airline workers strike in 1981, where Reagan went ahead and fired 11,000 air traffic controllers. That was seen as a bit of a watershed, right? That was a big turning point. Um, the the Patco, th- those were the air traffic controllers, and they were government employees. And Ronald Reagan was president, and he fired all of them, uh, because they went on strike. And the problem was the the rest of the labor movement did not really respond. But the trade union leader said, we're going to write a very uh, strong worded letter to President Reagan about this. But that's not that's not a response. Yeah, yeah, a terrifying letter. That's not a response. They, they should have taken everybody out. You know, there should have been a general strike. There should have been mass mobilizations. Um, if something like that would have happened, the labor movement um, wouldn't have been in, in that kind of uh, weak position. But if you fight and get defeated, that's one thing. But if you don't even fight, it's even worse, right? It's even more demoralizing. So that that ended up being a big turning point. And that was like the, the signal for the boss's offensive. And then, and then if you look at recently, you know, you've had COVID, for example, the COVID shutdowns, and the bosses tried to use this to speed up work, right? To have one worker doing the work of two people, three people. Um, and, and then you've also had inflation uh, develop uh, as a response to to to, to the uh, government trying to stimulate the economy. Just last year, the consumer price index went up six point four percent, which is uh, which is pretty high when you're usually getting a one percent raise or a two percent raise. But not only that, food prices went up ten percent. So you and and you have a, a situation in the United States where something like sixty four percent of the workers live from paycheck to paycheck. Um, a quarter of renters, by the way, pay over 50% of their income to rent. Um, and we should also note among younger workers who are just starting out, right, 
um, people who age 18 to 29, something like half of them live with their parents, which is in, in the United States, that's, that's very odd for, for at least this recent period of the United States. So it's, it's really forced the workers who are in unions to, try, to start to fight back. And it's forced workers who aren't in unions to say, we've got to band together, we've got to organize, we've got to fight back. And as a result, the popularity of unions has completely uh, 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 risen. You know, you've got something like 71% of the population now approving of trade unions. It's either as high or higher than it was in 1965. So things have really uh, uh, changed in that respect. Mm. Absolutely. And I think that it's not an accident that young people have an especially positive attitude about trade unions. Obviously, they haven't lived through the defeats of the past. They're less affected by the Reds Under the Beds Cold War propaganda that was used to undermine the union movements in previous decades. Um, I think that the best thing is if we deal with a few of the main strikes and a few of the main union developments in the states one at a time so let's start with probably the most famous at least internationally which is the amazon labor union uh, led by chris smalls am i right in saying that our american comrades interviewed chris smalls before he was uh before he was a household name Yes, uh, I, uh, myself and another comrade, we had an interview of Chris Smalls. This is even before he set up the Amazon Labor Union. Right, because he was fired from um, his his previous job for trying to organize. Isn't that right? He, Yeah, he was. Uh, Chris Smalls was an employee of Amazon. He worked in some of their facilities in New Jersey and in Connecticut and in New York. And what happened was when COVID arose, uh, he was very concerned about the lack of safety, uh, uh, you know, protocols in, in the, in the warehouse. And you have to remember also, if you got infected with COVID, it doesn't just stay with you, right? You bring it home. You potentially can get your family infected and all that. So he was raising many concerns and many objections to Amazon in terms of the way they were handling COVID. Cause, you know, like any other employer, uh, most employers, what they want you to do is work fast. They don't really care about health and safety, right? Um, even even if if it hurts the worker, that's okay. As long as the work is getting done, as long as we can get these things out and we can make a lot of money. So as a result, when he raised that, he w- they they claimed that they fired him because he violated the rules. But but it was just like as soon as he was um, giving uh, uh, you know letting the public know about what Amazon was doing or what they weren't doing, that's when he was fired from Amazon. So then he set up an organization called the uh, Congress of Essential Workers. Workers. And um, the, the, this, the idea behind this was he was going to try as, as, you know, as one person to try to like, um, you know, bring people's attention to, um, uh, you know, various abuses by various employers, including Amazon. And he might like, uh, you know, set up a date for a, a protest or, or a demonstration. And he would, you know, use social media and other, other uh, um, you know, uh, means to try to get that message out. And so a certain amount of people would show Show up for those protests, um, and then what? What happened is soon after that, he he heard about the organizing drive for one of the Amazon warehouses in Alabama, and and um, and that was led by a union called the RWDSU, which is the Retail Workers and and the Re- Retail Workers and Department Store uh, Union, um, and they were trying to organize that uh, that warehouse, that Amazon facility in Alabama. So he went down there. To support them, it's through that that he that, that he got the idea of setting up the Amazon Labor Union. 
I should I should point out though, you know, when he took on Amazon, he was not going against the small mom and pop operation, right? He's going up against some of the biggest, you know, uh, the like the biggest or one of the biggest capitalists in the United States, and unashamed, unashamed um, union buster as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And just to give give people the picture of what he was facing, the opponent of Amazon, Amazon has about one point one million workers. They have more than a thousand of what they call fulfillment centers of some kind. You know, these what they call fulfillment centers, we would call it like a warehouse or distribution facility. And about 130 of these are pretty large facilities. Like, for example, the, the place that he ends up organizing, JFK 8, I think it had about 8,000 employees. So some of these places are really large. They can, they can look like three or four, uh, the size of three or four American football fields. I shouldn't say, I don't know about how big football fields are in Europe. But with, I know it's a, it's a di- little bit different sport, but, but kind of give you the picture of how big these places are. And, um, so he, he started organizing in JFK eight where they actually had, where he actually had, you know, co-workers and, and, and people that he knew. And, um, inside they, they really tried to, to, um, use their, their ties with the workers inside to try to build that union from the inside. But they also did stuff outside of work. Like they had rallies outside work. They had uh, barbecues at people's houses and they really were, were successful in getting the message out that the workers would be stronger if they organized together into this new union, the Amazon labor union. So they did file for a, uh, what, what is called the national labor relations board, you know, vote vote to, to you know for representation and they ended up winning that that uh, that vote they ended up winning the 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 ability to to negotiate on behalf of the workers at JFK 8 they also did try to organize at a few other places including another warehouse in in uh, Staten Island New York uh but they they lost in some of those other uh, those other places now once they won the NLRB election all that says is that legally according to US federal law the employer should negotiate in good faith with the workers but it requires nothing else other than that of course amazon is not only dragging its feet they're actually fighting and appealing that that vote they have they've lost one of the appeals but there you you can keep appealing uh, up the different levels of the national labor relations board eventually go into federal courts you can drag this out um uh, you know as 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 long as 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 courts will allow you which which is probably pretty long um but so far the amazon has not been able to to decertify the this union but also the union hasn't been able to negotiate a contract i'd say one thing is like chris small and his and his people in the amazon labor union they're really fighting the good fight um and it really shows that a new layer of workers are coming forward to fight this, you know, the capitalists and they want to fight and they, and they, and they're eager to fight and they're doing what they can. But the thing is, is in order to, uh, to beat a large enemy like Amazon to big, it, it takes big numbers as well, right? You need some leverage. Like you think of that 130 big warehouses around the country, but only one right now is union. Um, you have to have the power to at least shut down a big chunk of the company or at least a region of the company to really have some leverage. And, and that right now is they're, they're not at that point right now. Mm. Well, of course, the, struggle is seldom a straight line and there are always lessons learned through practice but one point i wanted to draw out in relation to the developments of the amazon labor union and the struggle 
by Amazon workers is the role of COVID, because I think that was really decisive. I know that was a big factor in the developments of uh, Starbucks Workers United, which we can talk about later on. I remember not just this question of safety being an impetus to struggle, that, that, the, that was part of it. But as you, um, as you implied earlier, the bosses basically used the, we're all in it together. We're going to work harder. We're all essential workers. Um, faux national unity rhetoric around COVID to force a permanent speed up. Um, and permanent insecurity on big layers of the working class. I know this was a big factor at John Deere. And this is the other thing as well. It was the incredible hypocrisy of it because you had companies like John Deere, which if you, if you don't know anyone listening, it's a really important manufacturer of agricultural equipment. And it made bumper profits after the end of the, the first big wave of COVID when the economy was starting to open up again, but the workers were still swallowing um, pay cuts. They were dealing with rising inflation. This was just before the Ukraine war. Workers in Kellogg's who during the pandemic, I know myself and many others were surviving on cereal. So there was a huge um, boost in profits for, for Kellogg's, but um, Kellogg's workers were pulling ridiculous hours to meet the demands. And then a big section of them were faced with being laid off. So COVID was a bit of a turning point, but it really just exacerbated as you say, a long-standing squeeze placed on the American working class by the bosses. But is is this is this fair to say? Was COVID a bit of a a bit of a catalyst for this new development of the American working class's radical union struggle that we're seeing in this period? I think so. I mean, I, I there's no question that the, the bosses have been pushing for speed up. You know, for fifty years, it's not it's not something. To, but that co but that particular period of COVID, you saw it it got to uh, you you know to a higher level. Let's say you know the 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 pressure was really put on the work the workers, and that as a result, you saw a number of of um, strikes, even sometimes by unorganized workers who you know who just couldn't take the pressure anymore, and they just said stop. You know, we're we're going to stop working. Um, you say even even people like delivery workers, uh, people who you know. Deliver pizza and stuff. You saw saw these kinds of um, strikes develop during the COVID period. Mm. And one of these um, layers of the workforce that wasn't previously organised, but after the um, particular acute crisis of COVID began organising, was Starbucks workers. And this has been another big development that we've been paying attention to um, in, in Britain and throughout the world. The Starbucks workers united. Was it the Buffalo store that was the first to be unionized? Yes. You know what happened with, with, with this was, it's, it's actually interesting. There's a, a very large union in the United States. Um, I think it has about 2 million members, and it's called the Service Employees International Union. And they set up this union called Starbucks Workers United with the idea of trying to organize uh, Starbucks. Um, and, um, the, but, but the, um, the, their strategy was to kind of like do it piecemeal store by store, but it was the, um, the stores in Buffalo, New York, a couple of the Starbucks stores there where you had people who had just been pushed to the limit through, particularly with the situation with COVID. And they were the first to, to, to start the ball rolling, to have some successful, um, elections 
held by the National Labor Relations Board to to um, get these uh, locations to be um, unionized to vote for the union. Um, but but just to give you again the bigger picture with Starbucks, you know Starbucks has about fifteen thousand stores around the country, and um, the the with the strategy of organizing store by store, there's been some success, there's been some momentum, but right now you've got a, like something like more than 250 stores that have voted for the union. And that is good. That's a good start over 250, but you still got a lot of other stores, um, you know, to, to, to capture. The other, the other thing is that U.S. labor law says that unless both sides agree to have like a master contract. Let's say um, Starbucks were to agree with Starbucks Workers United to negotiate a master contract for all the union stores. Legally, Starbucks is only obliged to negotiate a contract per store. So they have a very much of a delaying tactic. So like even those early stores that unionize, like the Buffalo stores, as far as I understand it, they have not, not only that they don't have a contract in place, but they're, they're not even close to having a contract in place. Of course, the strategy of Starbucks is to stall. That's one of their strategies. Uh, another strategy, by the way, is to fire union organizers and to get, to get rid of people who are trying to organize, um, in, in their stores. And just to show you why labor should never, ever have any illusions in the capitalist court system. Um, in February, there's a federal judge, I think it was in Michigan, issued an order barring Starbucks from fri- firing any worker that engaged in collective uh, action, including forming a union. By the way, it is against the law to fire people who organize unions, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, so theoretically, it's But the bosses be very- can always find an excuse. They're always, oh, well, your productivity was down this month. Uh, it's nothing to do with the fact that you're organizing a union. It's just that you've not been selling enough venti cups. So uh, out you go. Exactly. They, they'll always use those kinds of, uh, those kinds of excuses. But anyways, this, so this, this federal judge puts this, the bars Starbucks from firing anybody. And then a few days later, that same judge said, Oh, I made some errors, but they didn't specify what the errors were. And they said that the order was not for Starbucks as a whole, but just one particular Starbucks uh, location in Michigan. So, um, you know, where, where an employee had been fired for union activity. So it just shows you even, even when you get the courts ruling, um, in your favor, they just quickly pulled back and, uh, and, and that universal order was, was, was rescinded, you know. Mm. I read a really interesting interview that you guys published on your website. That's socialistrevolution.org. I'll put a link in the description to this episode where you talk to one of these newly unionized Starbucks workers. And this was quite early on. This was one of the earlier branches that had become unionized. And obviously, you get a bit of a hint of the fact that it's a very fresh layer of the working class that's just getting a handle on what it means to fight back against the bosses to to build up workers power but also interesting to me is beginning to learn the relationship between the rank and file of the workers on the ground and the labor bureaucrats and the conservative role or the limitations they can place on the struggle of the workers on the ground and we'll, we'll talk later on about um whether this rejuvenation in the rank of the union in the ranks of the unions has translated to pressure at the top but i also wanted to talk about another organization that some workers and some young people might in the past have had illusions in which is the democrats um of course we in socialist revolution 
the American section of the IMT, we, we have a fine tradition of insisting on absolute class independence from the bourgeois democratic party. And I think that, well, time and again, that perspective has been validated, but with regards to the trade unions, it was validated again um, at the end of last year when a potential national rail strike was directly betrayed by the Democrats, including so-called progressives from the uh, the squad. So what are the lessons and perspectives here? We can talk about the rail strike in general, but also let's talk about this stab in the back from the, the Democrats and some of the so-called squad. Oh, I'll, de- I'll definitely address that. I mean, first of all, I, what I want uh, the listeners to understand is that if that national rail strike had taken place um, last fall in the United States, it would have been earth shattering. Um, in the United States, the bourgeois, both, both parties, Democrats and Republicans, they try to keep these cultural wars going and they try to divide the working class on anything they can, but they do, what they don't want is any kind of class divide. Because if you have a class divide in the United States, it's overwhelmingly on the side of the working class or the overwhelming majority. That's so that they don't want a, a battle on class lines where it's which side are you on as the song goes. Exactly. And the rail and the rail strike would have done that. The w- rail strike would oppose which side are you on? Which class are you, you know, who 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 are you for? So it was absolutely important for them to to make sure that didn't happen. Now the rail workers had tremendous potential. You had about 115,000 workers who 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 work in the various uh ra- you know parts of the railroad industry, and they're divided into a dozen different unions, but they control 40% of the freight shipments in the United States. That is real power. That is really, you can really cripple the economy. And and as a result, we talked about speed up before. The speed up on the rails is unbelievable. They have tried to uh, reduce the amount of people on trains. I think in some cases you have one person, one man on a train, running a right. train. And how long, are the, you, you know, you, you've seen there, 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 we've had three accidents uh, three derailments in just in the last few weeks, yeah, right? Most, Two in Ohio. Mo- yeah, most famously this uh, Ohio derailment, which released right. masses of toxic chemicals into the atmosphere. That's right. You've had actually had two two derailments in Ohio, the one that you're referring to, and another one, and one just in Alabama, just uh, I think a couple of days ago. Um, but but just to give people a, an understanding, just between January 2019 and June uh, 2022. You had 1,621 accidents on the rails. So these are, these are the ones that don't get as much uh, coverage, but I'm going to explain why. Uh, think about how long these trains are. Um, the Empire State Building is about 1250 feet high, or if you go by meters, it's 381 meters high. That's I the pre- Empire I pr- State I appreciate building. you managing to use the metric system yeah, on, yeah. Uh, we, this, I, on a British-made podcast. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going we, You know what? When, when we have the workers' government, of course, the United States is going to go on go metric. I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah. But um, but but anyways, so so if you if you get that picture of this, the how tall the Empire State Building is. Now the trains that they're running in the United States. I don't know how long they are in Europe, but some of these trains are 7,591 feet long, which is 2,300 meters long. So think of how long that train is. You got one, maybe two people running that train. This is, this is very, very dangerous. And, and then they run these, uh, the, the railroad people ragged, you know, the, the, the workers on the railroad, like, like if they want to, to take a sick day, they have to give two days notice. So, so what are you, what are you supposed to be, uh, to, to, to be able to predict when you're going to be sick? Like, I'm going to predict that, uh, in three days, I'm going to be sick. 
sick so I can give them two days notice. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. They have these people working, you know, uh, uh, day after day after day with hardly any time off. They're running them ragged. Of course, that, that makes your health really bad. And, you know, the U.S. has great traditions, by the way, in terms of railway strikes. If you go back to 1877 railway strike, the Pullman strike with Eugene Debs, you know, where he was trying to build one United Railway Union. You have all these great, um, militant strikes in the past but the government and the, the the capitalists have learned from that they they have certainly intervened in those strikes they've actually used u.s troops policemen pullman every i, I mean uh, uh pinkerton people they've used everyone that they needed to, to 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 tackle these strikes and they've of course passed legislation over time to regulate the railway unions and including the this 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 notorious law the the railway labor act um and it was this act that gives the government the power to postpone strikes and to legislate settlements and, and make strikes illegal. This is what Biden used to, to prevent the strike. So what, what Biden did was he put forward a settlement that was acceptable to the rail bosses. Uh, he didn't really care. It was also acceptable to the leaders of the, of the, of the uh, trade, the railway unions, but it wasn't necessarily accept, uh, acceptable to the members because when the members voted on it uh, in these 12 different unions, if you look at it, uh, more workers voted against this settlement than voted for it. But then they immediately, because they were fearing a strike, and by the way, according to um, tradition and according to the way things should be, if just one of these rail strikes, uh, one of these railway unions go on strike, all of the unions should be honoring that picket line. It should shut that, that, that thing down. So uh, Biden had the Congress uh, force the settlement down the throats of the workers and make the strike, any strike illegal. And it was voted for by 290 people in the House to 137. Most of those 290 were Democrats. Mm. Um, and three out of four of those Democrats were members of the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, you know, people who consider themselves or call themselves socialists. They voted for a federal law which banned uh, these railway workers from striking. There's no justification for that. You know? I think that we should make special mention of AOC's betrayal because literally up until the minute that she voted, she intimated to the workers that she would vote against. That's that's right. That's right. And and, and it was AOC. It was Bowman. It was uh, I think Cory Bush. All, all the, these um, these DSA members. And and absolutely, it, it's like there is no justification for a socialist to ever vote for the capitalist state and its ability to ban workers from going on strike. There's just no justification for that. They should have been fighting against that tooth and nail. But there's a logic, right? When you start looking at the two capitalist parties, you say the Democrats are more progressive than the Republicans, and then you play games with the Democrats, you you run as a Democrat, you're in that, you come under their pressure, and there's a logic, right? And then you're part of the Biden team and part of the Biden government. The Biden government is a capitalist government. It's a government of big business. It has nothing to do with supporting the workers, you know? Um, and 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 just that simple understanding is, seems to be missed by, by by these people. And they, if anything, they they think they might be uh, strategically using the Democratic Party to build socialism. It's the opposite. They 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 make socialists look bad when you, when you have a socialist in Congress that votes against the railway workers union. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was interesting because Biden up until this 
particular confrontation, at least in words, he was trying to play himself as a bit of a Labour president, wasn't he? He was saying about the Amazon workers and the Starbucks workers, oh, I think that if working people want to be able to unionise, they should be able to unionise, and not doing anything to actually assist the workers, of course, but at least in words, trying to play both sides, but came down pretty squarely on the side of the bosses on this one. Well, yeah, that's that's the Democratic Party playbook. When they they will um, use rhetoric that makes them look like pro worker, mm. as long as it means nothing. But whenever something has to be done, there's never a question of which side they're on, and they're not on the side of the working class; they're on the side of the bosses. You know, of course, of course. it's very clear. Well, funny, we referenced that Pete Seeger song earlier. I'd love to have we more time talk to you about the amazing revolutionary traditions of the American working class, like the Harlan County War and um, the, the, the the Utah uh, mine worker strikes and this sort of thing. Maybe we'll have to have another episode with a more of a historical bent. But anyway, um, focusing on the presence, I was asking earlier about whether this new wave of people looking towards the unions. And I think we should be clear that this is still a relatively modest growth in historical terms. Um, the unions are still a lot smaller than they used to be, even you know three or four decades ago. However, there has been a certain rejuvenation. It seems to be a lot of young people, a lot of new layers. And we've seen a phenomenon in a few different countries, including my own, where this rejuvenation places a certain pressure on the bureaucrats at the top of the unions to actually you know, get their asses in gear and do something. Um, has there been any pressure on the tops of the unions? Of course, the, the, the big confederation in America is the AFL-CIO, um, but I know that there were elections recently in the Teamsters, which is considered to be the, you know, the big radical union, quote-unquote, in, in the USA. So has there been any change at the top? Yeah, um, th th this is a good point. I, I, I want to I wanna, uh, illustrate that we're at the beginning the beginning of a layer of workers, particularly younger workers, who are starting to fight back. And that is going to rejuvenate the labor movement and it's starting to rejuvenate. But just to just to you know keep this in perspective, like if you look back in the 1960s and the 1970s, you look at major strikes. In any given year, you'd have 200 plus major strikes, 300 plus major strikes, 400 plus major strikes. We're not um, near that level yet. You know, we're, we're just, the, but, but what we are at is a much different level than what we had been, you know, since, let's say, since the year 2000. So things are starting to change and go in the right direction. And that is having an impact uh, at, in some unions on the top. Like the, the, actually the Teamsters Union traditionally is not, it was a radical union in the 30s in the sense that, um, it was a, um, small, um, craft union in the early 1930s. And the Trotskyists, um, turned that union from a small craft union into a major industrial union. It was, it was, the, it was the role of Trotskyists, the Minneapolis strikes and the Teamsters, the Northwest organizing and all that stuff. That, 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 that's what turned it into that union. Then, of course, in the, in the post-war period, um, you know, under, under people like Jimmy Hoffa and stuff, it was considered actually like a, cons a militant union, a tough union, but, but very corrupt and, and conservative union. And, and the, the, the recent president of the Teamsters was Hoffa Jr., right? It was Jimmy Hoffa's son. Uh, but he decided, I think he saw that it was writing on the walls and there was a lot of dissatisfaction. He decided not to run. And what was interesting is within his team, you saw a split. And you saw this guy, Sean O'Brien, who had been part of the Hoffa team. Mm 
But he split with Hoffa. He broke with Hoffa. And the, the, the thing that made him break from Hoffa was he, a lot of his workers work for UPS. UPS, United Parcel Service, they deliver packages, right? Um, the the, um, the U, UPS is the single largest employer that the Teamsters uh, negotiates with, that they, they represent. And, um, and, and when the last contract was negotiated, um, Sean O'Brien wanted to bring Fred Zuckerman, who is another Teamster leader, and he had the local in Louisville that has that air hub where there's that air traffic um, uh, distribution center for UPS. It's a, it's one of their big big uh, distribution centers, right? He wanted to include them, but Hoffa didn't want Zuckerman because he was part of the TDU, the Teamsters for Democratic Union, which is kind of an opposition group. So O'Brien broke with Hoffa on that, and O'Brien ended up uh, forming a coalition with uh, Zuckerman and the TDU, and they ended up winning the uh, leadership of the Teamsters Union last year. Another interesting point was at the same time at the Teamsters National Convention, the the Teamsters actually passed a resolution saying that they wanted to tackle the organization of Amazon. Now, that would be really fantastic if they really are serious and they follow up with that resolution because the Teamsters, they have 1.3 million members nationally, and, and well, at least US and Canada. They have the resources to tackle a big enemy like Amazon. You know, I, I know that uh, O'Brien has, uh, you know, expressed friendship with uh, Chris Smalls. I'm not, I'm not sure if he's given him like an office or whatever, you know, but, but you know, like the, the, if the Teamsters really put their resources into organizing, Amazon that that could happen. They pass this resolution. We'll see what happens, but they haven't um, they haven't followed through yet. At least publicly, we haven't seen anything from them yet. But they're also organizing to negotiate a new contract with UPS this year, and supposedly they're going to take a harder line than what Hoffa was doing, which is would basically accept um, you know what what the company offered on the company's terms. So we'll see we'll see how that plays up this year. But certainly the the victory of the Oslate shows the dissatisfaction. And and the workers are looking for for to change something in in the correct direction. There's also in the United Auto Workers Union that I don't know if you heard there was um uh, th- this is also a very key and important union in the United States. It's not as big as it used to be in the 70s. The UAW used to be like 1.2, 1.3 million members. Now I think they're down to like six, seven hundred thousand. So it re- reflects the gussing of the American automobile industry. Exactly, exactly, um, and um, and and also there's been a growth of non-union uh, manufacturing in auto, both auto companies like like Mercedes, Volkswagen, you know, Honda. Those are non-union. They're in the United States. You have auto parts, which used to be completely union. A lot of that's non-union, and the union has not organized that, or when they've tried to organize, they've had the wrong philosophy. Like, like when they were trying to, or, when the UAW was trying to organize Volkswagen, they said like, you uh, put, put us in there. We'll, we're going to be the best mediator between us and the bosses. That's not how the UAW was built. The UAW was built on a class struggle approach. The UAW was built by the Flint, Michigan, you know, uh, uh, sit down strike, which was a plant occupation. That's how the UAW was built. It wasn't built, you know, trying to be uh, friends with the bosses and stuff. But anyways, in the, in this recent UAW election, you had an opposition. They call themselves um, the UAWD, which is Unite All Workers for Democracy. And their their program was no concessions, no corruption, no tears, with the tears being like, if you get hired now, you get less pay than what the earlier work, or you, you don't get a pension anymore. And this is quite a big um, issue that a number of different unions are taking up, isn't it? The tiered system of pay. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Because from, from the point of view of the union leadership, they, they, for them, it solves a problem, right? They say, well, we'll, we'll, we'll kick, we'll, we'll make sure that the new people get less, but the older people, since we're not taken away from them, they'll vote for the contract. And they think that solves a problem. But what, what that does is it's a, first of all, it defeats the whole purpose of a union that you have people in the union doing the same job, getting paid different wages and different benefits. But also what are the capitalists, what's the conclusion the capitalists are going to, well, we'll hire more of the new people get rid of the older right, people, yeah. you know, or eventually we'll come after the old people. Yeah. We'll lean on the new people. It, it, you know? it accepts an objective division of the workforce on behalf of the bosses. Exactly, exactly. But anyways, this opposition ran, um, and the, and and the, uh, the what it looks like is they're they're counting the vote very carefully. It's very very close, and it's probably going to be a disputed election. But if this guy Sean Fain, who was in UAWD, if he wins, the reformers are going to end up having a majority on the executive board of the UAW. Um, there, the the UAWD plus one independent reformer will end up being a majority if Fain wins, mm-hmm. and it looks like he's ahead. But again. It's a close election and maybe, uh, uh, you know, in some dispute for a while. Mm. Any idea of when we're expecting those results? Um, the results are are tentatively out. But like I said, this I don't know how long this dispute is going uh, to take place. Right. It might be the case that we know by the time this episode airs, that will be a very interesting development. Tom, this has been really interesting. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I'm going to bring this to a close with a view to the future. Where do you see, I mean, you've made the point a number of times, and I think it's important to say this is only the beginning of the beginning of the new chapter in the history of the American trade union struggle. But where do you see things going from here? What's the perspective for the next period? And of course, this is a period where the cost of living crisis, even though America is in some respects more insulated than Europe, um, because it hasn't got a war going on on its continent and it's not reliant on Russian energy supplies. Nevertheless, inflation began even before the Ukraine war, affecting American workers too. Inflation is still pretty high in the States. You've got entire cities that are literally rotting from lack of investment, while Joe Biden sends billions and billions of dollars to perpetuate NATO's proxy war on Ukrainian soil against Russia. Um, You've got all sorts of wrangling in the ranks of the ruling class. You've got the kind of the the Trumpites and the rest of the Republicans fighting one another. You've got splits within or divisions within the Democrats as well. We'll talk about this in a future episode about the political situation in the States, which is also very important. But in the context of all of these different crises, it must put a big pressure on the consciousness of the American working class. So how do you see all of this translating um, in the next period as far as the trade union struggle goes? Yes. Well, first of all, the class struggle in the United States is intensifying and it's going to over, not in a mechanical linear way, but in an, uh, you know, an up and up and down way. The trajectory is that the class struggle is going to be more intense in the next period. Class consciousness is also growing in the United States. And this is in spite of all the propaganda. You know, in the United States, they want people to define themselves in any way that they see fit, but don't identify yourself by class. But in actual fact, class consciousness is growing. The class struggle is getting more 
more intense. And this will have major implications for politics in the next period in the United States. A new layer of workers who want to fight are breathing life into the labor movement. That layer, I, th- I think, is going to grow in the next period. And, and it's going to grow for one reason, one reason only. What choice do people have? <laughs> they, they have only, the only choice is to fight back because otherwise things are getting worse and, and, you know, your life is getting worse. You can't plan a future in the United States anymore. There, you know, the, the, the American dream, uh, you know, to the extent that it ever existed is gone from, for most, uh, working class people. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of conclusions being drawn in the next period. And it does take a while for people to, to draw conclusions and different layers of the working class will draw these conclusions in di- at different, uh, times. But there are going to be a number of conclusions drawn. I think one, one thing is that workers are going to see that they can't have illusions in, uh, the National Labor Relations Board and federal mm-hmm. state, uh, uh, court system. And that, you know, they're going to see that this, that this is nothing but the, the arm of the bourgeois state. It's, it, you know, if you try to, Build a labor movement, or 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 uh, you know, try to build a strong union within the confine, within the framework of the capitalist system, within the confines of bourgeois law. You are not going to win. These laws are written for one purpose and one purpose only: for the bosses to win, not for the workers to win. So people are going to are going to 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 see that th- this is not the way forward. Um, and and I bring this up because this is what the labor leaders have been telling people. You know, oh, we we just go through this procedure, go through that procedure, make sure that we that we follow the law and uh, and the unions were never built by following the law they were they were they were built by breaking the law that's that's just an actual fact and i think that's leads me to the second conclusion that i think a lot of people particularly young people are going to start doing is they're going to start examining labor history learn from labor history you know from 1934 to 1940 that six year period unions more than tripled in size in the united states you had mass organizing of auto steel rubber all these industries, electrical, you know, uh, appliance industries, agricultural equipment industry, that was all organized in that period. And how was it done? It was done because at that stage in the labor movement, most of the leadership of the unions that were building were in the hands of communists and socialists, Marxists, right? That's, that was the missing ingredient. That was the, that was the ingredient towards success. And the way they organized those unions wasn't by following NLRB procedures and winning court cases. It was by occupying plants. Like you had the Flint, Michigan sit down strike, which was a plant occupation. They occupied this plant from like December to through, through February, you know? And they 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 made an appeal and they said anybody who works for General Motors who joins our union wherever they work not just in Flint but wherever they they're going to be recognized uh, that we want GM to recognize that the UAW will negotiate for all of the all of these uh, all, all of our members wherever they work for GM you know those kinds of militant strikes and that led to a, a, a massive sit down strike a massive plant occupation that's how the unions were built with a class struggle philosophy with class independence and um, and and. and and, and uh, you know a dirty secret um, that you will not find out. By the way, if you if you belong to a union in this country, because in the United States, I've I've been a member of many unions in my in my, my past. I talked to to comrades who are members of unions. Never do they teach you trade union history in the unions. They don't want people to know. And if, if they taught them, they would they would see that every mostly every major union in the United States was either founded by a communist or a socialist, or they were transformed 
into powerful unions by communists and socialists because they had the class struggle perspective. And, um, you know, I, I think any defeats that happen along the way, um, you know, what is it? Is it Napoleon who said that a defeated army learns its lessons well? Some, That's something right, like yeah. that. Napoleon or, said it, that defeated armies learn well. Learn well. So I, I think every defeat will mean that a layer of workers will draw some conclusions, they'll learn some lessons from that, and that will str- strengthen the battles of the working class ahead. I think this growing militancy will couple with the growth of the ideas of Marxism, because really Marxism are the, is the, the idea that can lead to victory of the working class. But I will also say this, and workers have to be clear, there is no good life under capitalism. There's no like wonderful future. No pie like in the, the sky. Po- to- right. There, there, exactly. Exactly. There's no, there's no like post-war uh, boom period ahead where you're going to have strong unions and good wages and good, relatively good living conditions under capitalism. That's not going to happen. Mm. The, the strength of the labor movement is that workers are learning through collective activity, yes. the power that they have. And when they understand their power and what they can do collectively, they can understand we don't need bosses. Bosses need us, but we don't need bosses. We could run society. We could set up a socialist society. We can have a real good life. We can use the technology and the resources of the world to meet all of our needs plus much more that's the promise of the future that's where the american labor movement is going to go into the future it's going to rediscover its past and i think that past is going to be you're going to see it develop on a higher level in the next period Bella, ciao.